You know that time of year when we're supposed to feel thankful for our many blessings, right? So we try to feel thankful. We know we should, but it's tough to just feel thankful. But what if we did something different this year? New lenses just for a minute. What if we stopped equating our blessings with our circumstances? Now that might just bear repeating. What if we stopped defining our blessings in terms of our circumstances and began to consider the fact that the real blessing in our lives is that we have a God who is with us no matter what? It would mean that we'd be thankful that he never leaves us and never forsakes us, ever. It would mean that we'd be grateful for worshiping a God who is chasing us and inviting us to chase him. It would mean that we would thank the healer in the middle of the hurt. It would mean that we would express gratitude, not in response to our circumstances, but in response to who he is, period. Gratitude. It's when we realize that we're not entitled to anything. Gratitude, not for our circumstances, but for God's involvement in the middle of them. So what if this year was different? Gratitude for God's presence alone. That might just change everything. Yeah, everything. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. You know, I want to thank you. This is our, our week when we think about those things we are thankful for. I want to thank you guys for praying for us. It's, it's great to be worshiping here with you this morning, to be back. But it was awesome last week to be in a room full of our men all singing in unison, uh, you know, Great is Thy Faithfulness and other songs of praise. And so thank you. God met us in a very powerful way. And I'm so thankful to come back and have the ramparts here. Now, you know, there's a... If I say something that offends you, that you, I got a little more, you know, you have to get through to get to me. So that's pretty exciting. So you might uh, recognize Bobby McFerrin up there. Back in uh, 1988, Bobby McFerrin uh, recorded a song that ended up becoming the number one song of the year, the best song of the year, won a Grammy Award. It was entitled, Don't Worry, Be Happy. Here, here's a couple of the lyrics. There's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note for note. Don't worry, be happy. <laughs> In every life we have some trouble, but when you worry, you make it double. Don't worry, <laughs> be happy. And it goes on in that vein. And it's the, again, it was the song of the year. And at the same time, Bobby McFerrin is singing, Don't worry, be happy. There were some other things happening in 1988. For instance, a Colombian airliner crashed into a mountain, killing 143 people. A drunk driver going the wrong way on Interstate 71 hits a converted school bus carrying a church youth group and kills uh, uh, 27 of them. Iran Air Flight 655 is shot down by a missile launched from the USS Vincennes. All 290, 66 of them children, were killed. Thousands riot in Algiers against the government. The army kills and tortures about 500 people while crushing those riots. 75 people died in an air show in Germany. Terrorists kill nine tourists on an Aegean cruise ship. And Pan Am 747 explodes from a terrorist bomb and crashes in Lockerbie, Scotland, killing 259 on board and 57 on the ground. And yet Bobby McFerrin says the solution to that is, don't worry, be happy. Or Ed Norton, some of you older ones will remember the honeymooners. And good old Ed Norton, hey, dare Ralph. 
And Ed Norton worked in the sewers, New York sewer system. And he had a, a little ditty. He said, when the tides of life turn against you and the current upsets your boat, don't waste those tears on what might have been. Just lie on your back and float. <laughs> there you go. How's that for a solution when those things in life are getting you down? And let's be honest, guys. That's probably the best that they can do for us. If you're depressed, hey, snap out of it. Turn that frown upside down. Think of something else. Try some drugs. How about alcohol? That's easy to say, guys. It's easy to say just, just don't worry, be happy. It's extremely hard, if not impossible, to do. And I have some good news for you today. If you, if you can't be thankful about this, I don't know what it's going to take. But God has something far better for us than just, hey, you know, don't worry, be happy. He has real and lasting joy and thanksgiving during this thanksgiving season. So, hey, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Philippians chapter 4. We're going to pick it up in verse 2. I encourage you to take notes this morning. If you didn't get a note sheet on your way in, put your hand up. One of our ushers will get the notes to you. And if you're online, you can access all of this information, the, uh, the notes and other materials we've been talking about on our church app. So you, bet they, you really want to download that app. Today, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to the church in Philippi, gets very personal. A situation, if you will, was happening there in Philippi, and we see the steps that he lays out to experience real joy and real thanksgiving. And the first thing that we have to do in order to, to uh, experience this joy and experience true and lasting thanksgiving, rather than just don't worry, be happy, is we have to admit that we actually have a problem. You have to look at the problem. You have to realize it's there. It's not just come to church, put your mask on, pretend like everything's okay. No, you actually need to come, step out of your comfort zone many times and say, I have got a problem. They say that a problem defined is a problem half solved. Well, they had a problem in Philippi. Look at verse 2. The Apostle Paul says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Now, there doesn't seem to be a sin involved here, at least not a sin that Paul mentions, but whatever is going on between these two women is serious enough that it gets a mention in front of not only everyone there in Philippi, but every church that got that letter, and they circulated these, these letters to all the churches, and every church down for the last 2,000 years. <laughs> How would you like to have an issue <laughs> that gets broadcast like that? For the rest of time, pastors like me will be preaching about the problem you had, whatever it was. But, so we don't know what it was, but obviously, because the Apostle Paul mentions it here, it was affecting the entire church and probably causing a certain amount of dissension and disruption. And, and if there's anything that Christ wants for us that is paramount, it would be that we are one. Write down John 17, 20 and 21. Jesus is praying for us in his great priestly prayer. And he says, I am not asking on behalf of these alone, Father, but I also ask for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, and I are in me and I in you, so that also they may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. 
and see what, how high the stakes are that we get along, that we have real joy, that we have real thanksgiving when we gather around the tables this, this thanksgiving. It's the, the stakes couldn't be higher because it is our oneness, it is our unity that tells the world that what we are saying is actually true. You wonder sometimes while it's, why it seems like the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't getting very far. Francis Schaeffer, theologian from the 20th century, uh, wrote a little book called The Mark of the Christian. And in that, his point was, he actually says, you know, the mark of a Christian is not a, a, a cross around our neck or a little ichthys, a little fish symbol. It's not a bumper sticker or a t-shirt we wear. No, he says the mark of a Christian is the love that we have. They will know we are Christians by our love, as the song and the Bible says. And he says, is it any wonder that more and more people are not accepting our testimony? Because look at the church today. And how, sure, they, they sing their songs of praise for how they love God, but are they loving each other? Or is there a disconnect there? We can have different opinions, you see, and still be one. And this is vital right now in particular in our country because we are such a divided country right now. I, I know people that are not very excited about Thursday and having to get together with their family. In fact, a couple of years ago, they actually, people were putting out rules for how to get along with your family members on, at, around the Thanksgiving table. And they were saying, here are the topics you, you should not talk about. Don't bring up politics. Don't bring up, you know, because you, you don't want to have, you know, uh, Uncle Joe, you know, come at you with a, with a turkey leg, okay? And so, and, and there are people that, I mean, they were dead. I'm making a joke of it, but they're dead serious. You know, you, you, if you want to have harmony, that means that you just don't bring things up. But, but realize this, guys, you can't have harmony unless there are those differences. That's what harmony is. I mean, you notice the worship team up here, why do they sound so good? Because one reason is they're not all singing in unison. They're singing different parts, but they're all together. And I love the way the Apostle Paul uses that phrase, we are to live in harmony. It implies right from the get-go that we are different. We think differently. We vote differently, if I dare say. You know, and yet we are to still be one. And in fact, think about how that speaks to the world. You go and talk about how you vote to people outside of the body of Christ. And, uh, you know, that's at the very least you get canceled or, you know, get something thrown at you. Hopefully in the body of Christ, as we share things like that and yet still stay together. Imagine how that speaks to the reality of what we say Jesus does in our lives. It speaks far more than, than a lot of the words that we use. It's our actions in that situation. I love the fact that as part of the Evangelical Free Church, we invite people that have different thoughts, different ideas, different ways of doing things to gather together. We, we, we often say that we major in the majors. There are these things, the, the most important part of Christianity are the things that we agree upon. In fact, we would echo the sentiments of St. Augustine when he said, in essentials, unity. I mean, there are things. Jesus is the Son of God. It's only by the shed blood of Christ that you are saved. We have to agree on those things. There is one God, okay? Th those are the essentials. In the essentials, there must be unity. In the non-essentials, there is liberty. There are plenty of things we can believe and do, like, you know, what party you vote for, things like that. There needs to be liberty, 
And, and he goes on to say, in all things, charity. We need to be there for each other, even if you're flat out wrong, in my opinion. <laughs> okay. Paul tells them to live in harmony. And, and so the, the idea there, the implication is there, yeah, there are disagreements. And, you know, that, that's no revelation. There, anytime you get, uh, we used to say in the Baptist church, which is what I grew up in, uh, or my first churches, we used to say wherever there's two Baptists, there's three opinions, okay? That's, that's just the normal way of life. To live in harmony means to have the same uh, purpose, but a different mindset. Have the same mind. What does he say? Live in harmony. How do we live in harmony? He says, live in harmony in the Lord. That's the thing that unifies us. That's the thing. That's the essential, okay, that you have Christ and I have Christ. And yeah, we disagree on many things, but the most important thing we better agree on, and that is that we are both followers of Jesus Christ. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're going to live through eternity together. Yeah, with you, with me. <laughs> if you got a problem with me, well, you better get it settled here. We got all eternity to deal with that. <laughs> so let's agree, guys, on the most important thing. Find, and then find common ground and move forward. Even if you're right, you know, forgive somebody. And of course, we all think we're right. But just accept that, okay, Lord, you need to change their mind. And I'm going to do like Jesus did. I'm going to demonstrate grace. I'm going to demonstrate mercy to the people around me. Now, when we do these things, what's happening? Other people are looking. And maybe when there's these issues going on, they're looking and they're seeing what's happening. And what do people tend to say? Well, I don't want to get involved in that, yeah. that, that awkward situation around the, around the Thanksgiving table when somebody says something and somebody, there's an outburst, whoa, 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 I'm just going to back off, you know, it's, it's not my problem. In fact, you know, if it's happening in the church, that's why you, you guys have uh, Nate and myself, that's the job for the pastors, right? We go take care of all the issues. You don't have to do the tough stuff. Well, let me tell you guys, it's like being on a boat that's sinking, and saying, well, it's not my problem. I don't own the boat. And yet you're on the boat <laughs> that is going down. And whatever part you can have in the solution, you better take advantage of that because if the boat goes down, if the church goes down, if our testimony is destroyed, it takes all of us with, it, with us. That's what Paul tells the others in the church. He, look here, he says, you're in the boat, essentially. Verse 3, indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow's workers whose names are in the book of life. He asked this person, this, this true companion, to help. And it's obviously someone who is probably in a battle with Paul. And these women were also in that battle. And then they shared Paul's struggle. This means, that this, this word struggle means to labor or to strive or to struggle against opposition. These women were, could potentially have been prominent in the church there in Philippi to have this kind of, a, of an influence in the church. And they were assembled here. And he reminds them of what? that your names are in the book of life. So they're not just in the boat, they're also in the book. And he wants them here to focus on that. There's something far more important here than how you feel or your reputation. It's the reputation of Christ. It's the reputation of his name. It's the reputation of our church. 
Do you realize that I, I do quite often, <laughs> it's usually after I've done some stupid thing in front of people, and it, part of me thinks, oh, I hope they don't know what I do. I hope they don't know who I, you ever had that? <laughs> I, I've, I have people that, that say, uh, it used to be popular to put, put fish on the back of your car and, you know, Christian bumper stickers. And I've literally had Christians say to me, oh, I'm never going to do that. Not the way I drive. Well, you know, maybe the issue is not the bumper sticker. Maybe the issue is the way you drive. And guess what? A certain amount of people are going to know who you are. I remember one time uh, I was coming home, and this guy was on my bumper. And it, he was all but honking at me and everything right behind me as I'm driving up to my house. And uh, he, he, he goes screeching around the corner, and I go on up to the thing. And what he did was he, he tears down this street and then up a side street and pulls out in front of me as I was coming around the corner. Turns out that guy was the pastor of one of the churches here in town. And uh, I wondered, you know, Lord, I'm glad that wasn't me because there have been times. <laughs> and he says here, focus on what's really important, the book of life. You can look that up, say, in Revelation 20, you know, that that's, that's what's important. All these other things, you know, they, they, they can fall by the wayside. Focus on the fact that you belong to Christ. And when those books are open, your name is going to be written in there. And that gives you a responsibility. That gives you a, 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 a mission. The um, disciples in Luke 10 came back from doing ministry. And uh, Jesus is debriefing them. And they were all excited. They were saying, Lord, the demons submitted to us and all these wonderful things happened. And they're talking about the power of God and the way they were able to lay hands on people and all this kind of stuff. And Jesus says to them, do not rejoice that the demons submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. Okay, there's something far more important than all that stuff that is happening to you. This is what we see in Acts 2.42 when we, when we read, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and prayer. And I've shared this many times. Here they are, obviously, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's what we're doing right now. This is the apostles' teaching. It's the Word of God. But they were also equally devoting themselves to the fellowship. And then the last two words modify that. Fellowship is modified. What does it mean to fellowship? Break bread and pray, okay? And so it, they, were as, they were equally as involved with each other as they were with the Word of God. And that is vital. Otherwise, no matter how much we preach the Word of God... It will be negated by the way we act toward each other. That's why next week, as we are going to be sharing communion together, the emphasis is not just on my communion with God, that vertical relationship. It is equally involved with that horizontal relationship that we have with each other. That's why Paul says, examine yourselves. It, mainly by that, it's get right with the people around you. And yeah, of course, get right with God, but get right with the people around you just as much. And it's not someone else's problem, guys. It's all of our problem. In fact, one of our core values here at Crosswinds, we call it devoted relationships. It's taken from Acts 2.42. We, we serve, we do what we do, we worship with an attitude that says, I am there for you no matter what. No matter what you say to me, no matter how you treat me, no matter who, what idiot you voted for, no matter, I could go on and on. Am I touching some nerves here? Okay. I am there for you. It's like a marriage. I mean, there's no way out. 
Sadly, unfortunately, in the American church, there is a way out because there's another church down the road. But I, if I had a, a, the ability to make a rule, it would be something along the lines of, once you are involved with the church, you never get out. You have to deal with the issues. Now, you know, that's, uh, that's not going to work here in America because, you know, we like our rugged individualism, but it would be kind of cool. They had that in the first church, you know. There was no other church. <laughs> that was it. This is the only game in town, you know, for a while anyway. And so it, it, I think it, it helps to, to get us truly devoted to one another as God wants us devoted. So Paul urges them first, admit there's a problem, and then he demonstrates what to do next. That is to respond with prayer. Look at verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. <laughs> I mean, this is a big enough problem that, again, he's bringing it up in front of all Christians for the rest of time. It was that big a problem. And yet his solution is, rejoice in the Lord over this. And again, you know, just to put the, the, the exclamation point on it, someone, someone told me in staff this week that, Willie, you use a lot of exclamation points. You, you probably noticed that in anything I write. Uh, I'm not using capitals because I know that means I'm screaming at you. But yeah, I do use a lot because I kind of think that's the way I talk. You know, it's, it, it's, I sort of exclaim everything I do. And, and so, you, you know, that's what Paul is doing here. Again, I'll say, rejoice. We, we, I made fun of don't worry, be happy because it seemed like an impossible goal. Well, what's the difference here? I mean, after all, we sing this song too, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, clap, clap. Hey, hey, hey yeah, some of you know it. Some of you were in youth group. The difference is, guys, while happiness may be impossible, why? Because the very nature of happiness requires a positive environment. That's what it means. In order to be truly happy, you have to have good things happening to you. If bad things are happening to you and you're happy, I may need to talk with you. We may need some counseling. I mean, you know, if, if people die and, and children cry and, you know, things like that, I mean, that, that's, you should feel bad. You, maybe happiness is not the correct response at that point. And so, but here we have, it, while it requires this positive environment to be happy, all of us can be joyful. How? In the Lord. And the Apostle Paul is proof of that, even in this letter that he wrote, in case you don't know, he wrote the book of Philippians, or the letter to the church in Philippi, from prison. Okay? He is in chains, as he says many times, and he's writing the overall theme of the book of Philippians is joy. And you see, that's what people want today, People want joy. They want something that's lasting. They want something that's, that, 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 that is good like that. But I think often what we see happening is they settle for happiness. But we have a whole entertainment industry. We have a whole vacation industry dedicated to keeping you happy, producing happiness. Big Pharma has all kinds of stuff, all kinds of drugs that can make you happy. They, people even call them, I'm taking my happy pills. You know, if, if people go to happy hour in order to produce happiness. I'll tell you, growing up as a kid, I went to happy hour with my mom as she was getting happy. And I can tell you, when, when you're not drinking, nobody in that place looks happy. But they call it happy hour. Interesting, isn't it? But joy, guys, is something that we cannot produce ourselves. 
There's no, in spite of what you hear, there's no kickapoo joy juice that's going to make you joyful. Why? Because joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It comes from the indwelling Spirit within you. And Galatians 5, and 23 says, out of that will come the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, and all the rest. And it's only through our relationship with the Lord that we can even begin to have true joy. And without that relationship, we try then in vain to fill our lives or fill that void with something coming close to happiness. Guys, do you want true joy in your life this morning? Do you want to truly experience what joy really is? Then as Paul has demonstrated to us here today, pray. Ask God to fill you with his spirit, as he says in Ephesians 5.18, which says, do not get drunk with wine wherein to excess, which leads to debauchery, but rather be filled with the spirit. Now, he's not telling us not to drink. He's telling us that as the, dr- as the alcohol affects an alcoholic or a drinker, why do you drink? Because it feels good. He says, as the alcohol affects the drinker, the Holy Spirit of God can affect you. It, he can change you from the inside out. He can produce those, that fruit of the Spirit. We talk about the ABCs around here. Admit, believe, and choose. And it works for the Holy Spirit. Admit that I am not living in accordance with the command of Ephesians 5.18. I have not asked God to, to fill me with his Holy Spirit. And by the way, that's a continuous action word there. When he says, be filled with the Spirit, you could actually write in there, and many people do, write in there, be being filled. Because it's an ongoing thing. I can pray and ask God to fill me with his Spirit. And then I'm experiencing the fruit of the Spirit. And then somebody cuts me off in traffic and the Spirit went, (laughs) bye-bye. I mean, he didn't leave. It's just my relationship with him flew off. (laughs) And suddenly I'm thinking unspiritual things that the Holy Spirit didn't put in my mind about that guy. And then I have to be being filled. Once again, Lord, that's that's coming from me. That's not coming from you. Fill me with your Spirit. Admit my need of of, of being filled Believe that he will answer that prayer and choose to pray that prayer. And it's the same for salvation, by the way. If you're here today and you've ever, never asked Jesus to be your savior and you're not even really sure what that is, and if you're not sure what that is, then you've never done it, ABCs work there too. Admit that I do have a need of Jesus. I want the things you're talking about today, Willie. I want what the Bible says is available to me and to others. Well, you can't have it without the Spirit in being in you to begin with. And you have to admit that to the Lord. And to admit means to, to agree with God. And admit that, Lord, I do need your son, Jesus Christ. Why? Because the Bible says all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. And that word death means separation from God, spiritual separation. If you feel far from God, that's why. It's as if you're dead. And spiritually, you are dead. And in order to experience eternal life, you need to pay the wages of your sin. You need to die. But Jesus came into this world, as we're going to celebrate in about five weeks. Jesus came into this world as a little baby. He lived a perfect life. He He never sinned, so he didn't owe the wages. And yet, at the end of his life, 33 years later, he went to a cross. Why? Why did he die on a cross? Not for his sins. 
He died for my sins and for your sins. He gave the greatest Christmas gift of all. And this morning, if you admit your need of a Savior, believe that Jesus Christ did exactly what he said he did. He came, lived a sinless life, died on a cross, was buried, and rose again on the third day, just like we can, you can also experience new eternal life. And then everything we're talking about also applies to you. And you have to choose. That's the C. Admit, believe, choose. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And what is stopping you this morning? All it takes is saying, yes, Jesus, I want it. It's like it, it, for many people, they've been given this gift. That's what I'm telling you this morning. You have a gift. Whether you've got your tree up yet or not, there's a gift that's been waiting for you from, from your birth onward. Have you opened it up yet? Don't wait another moment. Ask the Lord Jesus, Lord, I, I want that gift. I, I'm not exactly even sure what it is. Trust me, you won't know until you've accepted the gift. Just like, you know, I don't know what's in these boxes unless I open them up. Opening them up means confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord and believing that God has raised him from the dead. Then the box opens and you will begin to understand. And then it's a lifetime of just new uh, revelations, a new meaning, and new excitement. And you can experience that inner joy that, that Paul is talking about here, no matter what your circumstances are. Paul encourages here to be joyful, to rejoice always. But joy, you see, because it's inside, isn't always visible to the people around us. But our actions, as we've already been saying, are very visible to the people around us. And so what does Paul say next? Verse 5, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. When people think of me, when they think of Willie, I would hope that they would think that I am someone who is gentle. Gentleness is how my joy can be seen. A gentle person, now that, you know, I know we say that, especially us guys, like, oh, I'm not sure I want to be gentle. But gentle could be reasonable, fair-minded. A gentle person, guy, guys, is not weak-willed. A gentle person is not passive. A gentle person is someone who uses appropriate force in a given situation. You disarm a violent person without retaliating against them. You don't intimidate people that you disagree with. You honestly talk with people. Last, uh, last week, Charlie gave a devotion about being gentle. And I think, what, I think you said that being meek is not being weak. And the greatest example of that is Jesus Christ himself. Why was Jesus considered meek? Because he had total power that he chose not to use. As I think Charlie said, it's power under control. I can, I can overpower many of you in this room, but I choose not to. That's meekness. That's not weakness. A gentle person can take a hit without retaliating. I can understand that, well, that's where they come from. And after all, if I was dying and going to hell, I might feel bad too. I might be responding in some of these ways. We can be forceful without being cruel or vengeful. Why? Because we know that ultimately God is in control of everything. And I tell you guys, throughout this pandemic, throughout these, these crazy elections we've been having, that is the thing that has sustained me probably more than anything else at all, is recognizing that, you know what? God did not step off the cross two Tuesdays ago, okay? He is still in control. And we have the, 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 the politicians that we need. 
I don't understand the total ramifications of that, but if, if you don't like the, the, the man or woman that's in office or what they're doing, realize that God installed them for a purpose. He, they're in there because he allowed it. Gentle people know and emphasize the main thing. Look at what, what Paul says here. The Lord is near. That's the important thing. Jesus can come at any time. That's why we can be gentle because we know the Lord's coming and, and, and he's going to take care of everything. So if you have joy within you and people see gentleness in your actions in your life that comes from the confidence that I have in the return of Christ, it dispels worry. It dispels anxiety. I, I, can, I don't have to worry. Instead, I can be thankful. Look at verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. To be anxious for nothing doesn't mean to be carefree, doesn't mean to be reckless about it. We are called to care, okay? We are called to be concerned. That's what verse 3 is talking about. But don't be anxious because the Lord is in control of this situation. I can care about you without worrying about, is this all going to blow up? To be anxious and to worry is, if you think about it, it's a subtle form of a lack of faith in God. And when you have faith, you don't worry even when you normally would. I, many of you know, my dad was a truck driver, and quite often as a kid, I would travel with my dad, and uh, there would be times when I was in the sleeper cab, and I was, in the, I was in the sleeper, I was asleep, and I would wake up, and I remember one time in particular, I woke up, looked out, and the fog was so thick, you couldn't see anything out of the windshield, and I asked my dad, I'm probably about eight years old, I asked my dad, can you see anything? And if you knew my dad, you'd understand his answer. He said, no. <laughs> now, what do you think I did? Did I jump into the seat and, you know, like, oh, my goodness, he can't, my dad can't see, and he's barreling down the highway in a truck and trailer. No, I closed the curtains and I went back to sleep. Why could I do that? Because I knew my dad. I trusted my dad. And I knew that if, even if my dad couldn't see, that it was going to be okay because he would not put me in danger. How do you develop that kind of trust? You develop it through a relationship. And how is that developed? Through communication, through those prayers that we have. And he uses four terms here for prayers. Just very quickly, prayer that is a general term for a, a worshipful conversation with God. Supplication is, is prayer with a sense of urgency and need. You know, I, I need this, Lord. Thanksgiving, and, 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 and when we pray in Thanksgiving, we're praying, thanking him for whatever answer because we know it's going to be the best. And, and even if the answer is no, it's going to be the best answer. I always, I've often told you about how at one point one of my children wanted a shotgun after watching a, a Western. And I said, no. And their attitude was like, don't you love me? I mean, I'm asking you for a gift and you're not giving it to me. Well, I know better, okay? So the answer to this is no for right now. I prayed and prayed when my dad had a damaged heart valve and went in for surgery. And I prayed and prayed that God would just remove it because they, they didn't give him very good odds to survive the surgery. And I prayed and prayed and God didn't remove it and he went into the surgery. Now, was I cheated? Did, did God lie to me? No, because out of that, my father, the night before that surgery, asked me about knowing Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord and I was able to lead my father to Christ because I didn't get it answered the way I wanted it answered. 
God's got this, guys. He's working out. We said that a lot during the pandemic. But guess what? He still has it, even after that time. Paul tells us here to pray about everything. Be specific. Pray about even the little things. You might ask about that. You mean pray about little tiny things? Well, I got news for you guys. No matter how big your problem is, it's little to God. To God, everything you could possibly pray about is little. Because let's put it in perspective. He's pretty big. And I've had people say, well, he knows everything already. So then why pray? Because it builds our relationship with him. When my kids were growing up, to some degree it still happens, but especially when they were growing up, there were times when they were telling me about things and they're going on and on. And I knew what they were talking about and I knew what, was, what the result was. Did I shut them down? Did I say, come on, I know this. Don't waste my time. No, I let them talk because that was building our relationship. It's the same with me and God. Yeah, he knows it. But the issue isn't what we know or don't know. The issue is our relationship. Pray about everything. Worry about nothing. Again, I know that sounds like don't worry, be happy. Except that God has real power. It's not just wishing that things go well. It's knowing that he has the power to actually affect everything. Do you want to worry less? Do you want to have less anxiety? First, admit there's a problem. Then second, pray. Ask with thanksgiving. Present your request to God. And, when, and whenever you start, start to worry, stop and pray. And what will be the result? You will experience God's peace. Look at verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When we turn from worry and anxiety to the prayers of, towards God, we will then experience the peace of God. And it's a peace, trust me, that is far different than anything we have ever experienced from any other source. Jesus promised this peace to us in John 14. He says, peace I leave with you, but he has to define it. My peace I give to you. We're not just talking about the ends of war because you have this peace in the midst of war. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Don't let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful. True peace, guys, isn't found in positive thinking. Don't worry, be happy. It's not, the, it's not even the absence of conflict or good feelings. It's knowing that God is in control. It's knowing that he's the one that's driving in the fog with us in the sleeper. And we are given peace with God when we believe in him. We also have the peace and joy of God as we walk with him each day, as we moment by moment continually allow his spirit to fill us. Now, you may say that peace you have doesn't make sense. And you know what? You'd be, good, you'd be in good company. Even Paul couldn't come up with a good way to describe it. And so what does he call it? He calls it a peace that surpasses all comprehension. The apostle Paul never seemed to be at a loss for words, except when it came to explaining the peace that he has. And he says, it doesn't make sense. I, I cannot comprehend why I am peaceful. In fact, think about the Bible. Think about, let's just look at the New Testament. And look at the, 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 the lives that they lived, the stuff they were going through, the persecutions, the, the martyrdom. And yet over and over, the, the, you'd say the New Testament of God is a positive book. It's exciting. These people were, were living, you know, life up here while most of us are down here. There is something to this that is otherworldly. It's a peace that doesn't make sense other than that God gave it to us. 
And trust me, if you take God at his word, you will experience that peace. It's, and we can't explain it, just like the apostle Paul, but it's there nevertheless. And what will this peace do? He says, it will guard your heart and your mind. That guard, that word guard there is a nice word, a neat word. It, it speaks of a military garrison. And as a Roman colony, the Philippians would totally understand this because they had a Roman garrison that was standing guard outside the city. And seeing those soldiers around their city would encourage the people because they're they're standing guard against anything that might hurt us. And Paul here is saying God's peace is standing guard over your heart and my heart, over our minds. But know this, at times prayer may change things, but guys, that's not the ultimate purpose of prayer. The ultimate purpose of prayer, hopefully you've heard this before, is to change me. It's not just to get what I want, it's that what I want becomes what God wants. Think about it. Jesus himself modeled that in Gethsemane. What did he say? Lord, I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to die. It's, it's awful. You know, that's, that's his human side speaking. But how does he finish? Nevertheless, Lord, your will be done. The apostle Paul prayed in 2 Corinthians 12 for this thorn in the flesh that he had to be removed from him so that I'll be more effective, Lord. And imagine the things I'll do for you if I didn't have this ball and chain, this thorn holding me back. And what does the Lord say? I gave that to you. I have a purpose for it. And what does Paul conclude from that? Then nevertheless, I I will now glory in my thorn. (laughs) I I will praise God for my thorn because, because of that, God receives the glory. Guys, we entered this passage today admitting that we had a problem. We came out of this passage today experiencing peace. And what happened in between? Prayer. How has the situation changed? Has the situation changed? I don't, you know, we don't know what happened to these two women. Maybe it changed. Maybe it didn't change. We don't know. But in addition to praying, God changed this situation, we need to be praying, God, change me. That's what Jesus did in Gethsemane. Nevertheless, Lord, your will be done. Instead of don't worry, be happy, it's don't worry, pray. Take your cares and turn them into prayers. I didn't mean to rhyme that, but there you go. (laughs) And many of us probably know this, but the question is, do I do it? In the heat of battle, in the heat of life, do I actually have the the, the mental awareness to stop myself and say, and if not, then pray and give that to the Lord. Lord, I am toast when 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 I get cut off in traffic. So, Father, can you, can you help me through those times so that my first reaction becomes a reaction that honors you rather than something that I have to say, whoops, <laughs> rather than a, an example of how I am not filled with the Spirit. Lord, may, may I be filled with the Spirit even prior to those experiences. Do we leave our anxieties with the Lord or are we wondering who I can find to help me, which is not a problem because we're here for each other. That's what Paul is telling the Philippians. We're here for each other. We're all in the boat. We all need to get involved in this. But there's something better to do first. Right now, in your notes, I hope you got a note card, but I have a, I have a little uh, uh, response card that I put at the bottom. It looks like this. And I, there's, I want you to write in that box, 
whatever it is that you're anxious about, whatever it is, and it's just between you and the Lord, we're not going to collect these, or you're not going to, it's up to you if you want to share it, but uh, so between you and the Lord, what is that thing that is really besetting me right now? Maybe it's that relationship or a a physical problem you're experiencing or a a financial pressure or some kind of a situation that you just don't see any way out. Well, in a minute, as we finish up and as the worship team comes back up, I'm going to pray with you. And uh, I'll let you know, I've got my pen out because I'm going to be writing too. And we're going to take God at his word. He promises that we will experience peace. Not a peace that comes from understanding Those people that say, until I understand it, I ain't going to do it. You're never going to do it, okay? You don't understand God most of the time. But it's a peace that we cannot understand. It's beyond comprehension. A peace that will leave us saying, not don't worry, be happy. But instead, don't worry, be thankful. Even to those people around your table this Thursday. I hope you all have wonderful experiences with your family. But if you're normal, I won't go there. (laughs) So whatever you've written down there, I mean, I'm looking for maybe one or two words. It's up to you, however you want to do it. Or maybe just think it if you don't want to actually write it out. Maybe they're sitting next to you. Anyway, (laughs) let's, let's pray together about that as I pray with you. Let's pray. Father, here it is. Lord, you know how this thing that I have written has been dragging me down. You know how this thing has maybe even been keeping me up at nights with worry, with anxiety. But right now, Lord, through your word, I realize that instead of trying to figure out how I can fix this or who I can find to help me fix this, Lord, I am choosing to rejoice. And I'll say it again, rejoice. I'm choosing to thank you because, Lord, You're in control. You're sovereign. You're doing something in this situation. And so, Lord, primarily, I am asking you, based on what we've seen in your word today, Lord, change me. This thing that you know, Lord, between you and me, it's been weighing me down. It's been robbing me of joy. And I've been been flailing around looking for a little bit of happiness as a substitute for the real joy you want to give me. So change me, Lord. Free me from this burden that I am just going to give to you right now. And Father, fill me with your spirit as Ephesians 5.18 commands me to ask you to do. And with him, Lord, allow me to experience a peace that doesn't make sense. Peace that, as Paul said, surpasses all comprehension. And I thank you, Lord, that you have done this. And we'll continue to do this as I walk in your spirit. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.